Hello and welcome to The Investor's Guide to China from Fidelity International. I'm Paris Anand, Head of Asset Management in Asia-Pacific, and each episode I'll be taking you deep into China's economy to find out what's driving the country, where the exciting opportunities are, and perhaps areas where we should be a little bit more wary. Today, stock picking, the art and science of researching and understanding which companies to invest in, whether those be SOEs, state-owned enterprises, or POEs, privately-owned enterprises, acronyms you'll be getting very familiar with. China is in many ways still an emerging market, and it comes with its own idiosyncrasies. But as markets continue to open up, and there's been big news just as we record this episode, China offers significant rewards if you have the right tools. And bringing their toolboxes with them today to join me in Hong Kong are two of Fidelity's China experts. First, we have Jing Ning, one of our senior China equity portfolio managers. Jing, you've been looking at this market for some 20 years. What's the biggest misconception that you tend to come across when people think about investing in China? Every year, I met uh, probably uh, dozens of investors. Uh, they are very interested to invest in China, and they want to know what's going on from the policy and consumption story, the new technology on China. But with that being said, I can feel there's always been a war of worry on China. Everyone is asking about China has been growing the credit for very rapidly in the past decade and when it's going to be stopped. And uh, we have been building the bridges and the railways and the infrastructure investment when it's going to be stopped. And I think the more pessimistic question is always asking, when is the reckoning moment on mm. China is going to come? So there hasn't been a year, uh, I can be very honest with you, there hasn't been a year if I visit my investor globally, Europe and uh, Asia, they haven't asked this question, right? So there's always been a war of worry on China. With Jing is Casey McLean. Casey, you're an investment analyst who's covered Asia PAC for almost two decades. Uh, last 13 years, you've been really focused on China. You've covered almost every sector uh, during your career in the region. From an analyst perspective, what are the big changes that you've observed? I think the biggest changes specifically with China really is, is the composition of the market. Um, I think if you look back 10, 15, 20 years ago, it was dominated by industrials, materials, you know, uh, financials, property. And you know, China was back then, it was really the outsourcing factory for the rest of the world. But if, if you look at the market composition now, it's changed a lot. Uh, you know, you've had the emergence of internet. There's a lot of consumer brands with their own genuine brand value in China. And, and there's more and more services being delivered in the market every day. So uh, I think what's changed is, is China's gone from a, uh, an industrial manufacturing center to you know, a place of genuine sort of innovation. And that, uh, that innovation is being rewarded in the market as well. So let's dive into the, the topic of today's podcast, which is stock picking. Jing, how do you go about stock picking and what makes your investment approach unique? You know, China is an emerging market. The market is quite chaotic. Every day we're dealing with policy changes, new competition, and there's always new change of business model. I think for investors in China market, you really have to know your company well. 
and it takes years, sometimes take ages to know the company, especially you know your company better in a downturn than good times. Sometimes I tell my investor, like, although there is um, so many noises flowing around in China market every day, but the key is to build conviction. And what comes with the conviction is to know your company really well. And that takes time. And Casey, how do you distinguish a good company from a, from a bad company in a market like China? Yeah, for me, I mean, the, the first point of my sort of process when I'm looking at a company will be to, to screen out any, any bad actors by, you know, looking for stocks that are potentially, you know, accounting manipulators or, you know, have some bankruptcy risk or, or whatnot. But uh, I, I try and look for companies that have a minimum level of quality. Uh, I'm not saying high quality, I'm saying a minimum level of quality, one that's able to earn a return of, uh, of invested capital above its cost of capital across a full cycle. Uh, there's a lot of cyclical companies in China, especially within the tech sector, which I'm looking at. Uh, so I don't worry about what they earned last year. I worry about what they're going to earn next year. And uh, the, if you pick a stock at the right point of the earnings cycle, you can be rewarded for that. Yeah, I think another thing is uh, most people coming to China, they're, they're looking for growth, right? They're looking for the next Alibaba, the next Tencent, and people are constantly looking for the next growth story. But Paris, as you know, I'm probably one of the very, very few value investors in China. And um, actually, I think the value actually plays a very interesting angle in China. The value story in China is not dull at all. It's quite interesting. I mean, for example, Casey and I, we look at a company called Lenovo, uh, that was like a two years backward. And then at that time, Lenovo doesn't fit into any definition of a growth company. But when we look at it, it used to have a great company history and it got into a temporary trouble. And we believe that companies do have a decent chance to turn around to be a growth company sometime a couple of years later. Would you say Lenovo is a value stock or growth stock? I would say it's a very interesting growth stock, but with an extremely attractive valuation. At that time, we look at it. Was it hard to get excited about Lenovo, Casey, as a sort of a, a technology investor? Yeah, I mean, Lenovo's probably not quite at the leading edge of, of some of the, the technology companies that you can look at out there. But, um, I mean, I agree with Jing. It, it was very attractive value. It was, it was spinning off a lot of cash flow from its main division, which is PCs. And uh, if you could uh, get confidence in their mobile division, which has been loss-making for a long time, if you get confidence in that turnaround story uh, there was a lot of money to be made uh, and so you do need to have very high conviction in those sort of turnaround situations but doing a lot of work and sitting down with management had a full day with management in the every head of every division we were able to gain that conviction and uh, fortunately that that division did turn around quicker than the market was expecting and uh, they've gone on to to, to better things. Now, turning to Jing, you, you know, you, you talked at the beginning about this kind of wall of worry that, that investors often often climb. And one of the things that's, that's often reflected to me is that corporate governance is a, is a huge area of concern. So people worry about protection for minority shareholders being different to what you might see in other parts of the world. You know, balance sheets, ownership structures can often be sort of convoluted. So how do we, how do we consider those risks? I mean, what, what do you consider when it comes to corporate governance? You cannot invest in China without thinking about corporate governance risk, that's for sure, right? But for me, I kind of think that issue as a different many layers of gray rather than straightforward black and white. 
because when I talk to many companies and they sometimes they do like things that we don't like them to do, like related party transaction, they do irrational acquisition. When you ask them why you're doing that, you're destroying minority shareholder value. As a result, your market value has been going downhill, right? And they, the usual answer I get from them amazingly is, we don't think it's a big deal. Why do you think it's a big deal? And then it's more about culture, corporate culture, and the think the way they think about what is the right form of governance for the minority shareholders. So that's why actually I think Casey probably agree with me. Active manager plays a role here. Yeah, yeah, definitely, I agree. I think I think there is perhaps a perception and, and a reality that the the level of corporate governance in China is lower than in some of the developed markets. But what I try and focus on, I guess, is the delta in that corporate governance. It's it's the improvements which drive you know better quality in the companies and, and potentially sort of re-ratings in in stocks. Uh, and, and you've seen evidence of that uh, over the last few years, uh, particularly among some of the bigger SOEs who have really improved their, their capital allocation and doing a lot less national interest investing. And you've talked a lot about this idea of trust and building trust in companies. So how do we how do we do that? How, how Jing, in your process, do you go and build trust in, in companies and the management teams that run them? For me, uh, people is number one. Uh, top priority in any business you look at. So usually when we meet a new company, identify a new interesting investment idea, well, the first step is you go to meet uh, with senior management, like CEO and a CFO. But I don't think the research work usually stop here. Usually we'll try to make further staff to try to meet uh, the, the middle layer of the management. We want to meet uh, the head of sales, the head of marketing, the head of PR, and to understand the culture. But that uh, takes time. Yeah, no, that's right. I, I think Increasingly, over the last few years, we've we've been engaging, collaborating with companies a lot more, and they're a lot more open to the, these uh, discussions, dialogues, two-way streets. Here, we're not not an activist investor in in, in any way, but uh, we're trying to work together to to generate better shareholder value. So you actually everyone. feel your voice is being heard when you go and see these companies and you engage with them. You feel that as a even as a minority shareholder, your voice is heard and listened to. Yeah, sometimes, you know, every year we try to identify some company and uh, we send angry letters. And I call them angry letters, just basically complaining something that they have done, not taking care of the interests of minority shareholders. Sometimes it's the, they don't pay us dividend and sometimes we think they should do more. And I mean, in the beginning, well, most of our letters get ignored and we get no consequence whatsoever. But gradually, very interestingly, I think Casey agreed with me in the case of Sanopec, we sent a letter to them to the board and asking for a sustainable dividend payout policy. And they actually responded to us and said they would seriously take a look of our proposal. So I mean, I'm not anticipating any far work coming at the end of the day, they're going to change their behavior overnight, but that's a very encouraging uh, development, I would say. And looking at the composition of the market, there are obviously state-owned enterprises as well as there are, there are private companies. Casey, should, should investors approach those differently? Not necessarily. I mean, at, at the end of the day, uh, you're just trying to find a, a company that's going to deliver a good return. But um, I think there's different risks that you need to be aware of when you're looking at those two different groups of companies. In private companies, the potential for, for fraud, accounting manipulation, those things are probably higher. And, and they're also 
you know, smaller, more nimble companies. They can move fast. They can break things, though, at the same time. But whereas you look at the, some of the SOEs, they're larger companies. You know, they move more slowly. And I guess the biggest risk with those is that they they have to undertake national interest um, and and support the Chinese economy and other companies. Yeah, I think that's basically what Casey is saying. There's there's always two sides for the same coin, right? Uh, SOE they taking the state support, but on the other hand, they will, of course, take social responsibility. And private companies, they're very nimble and they're very flexible, but on the other hand, they are very strongly incentive to do well. Of course, they will have incentive to cheat you if to maximize their shareholder value. And, and But there can also be a valuation disconnect. Often the SOEs traded a big discount to the private companies. And like, like we say, if you see this delta, the improvement in corporate governance or their earnings profile, that can be a great opportunity, especially for a value investor like Jin. So it really seems that it's all about making sure that you understand the individual company and doing the on-the-ground research. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Well, on the subject of on-the-ground research, we spoke earlier to another one of our portfolio managers, Hyomi Ji. Our Asia editor, Neil Goff, caught up with her for some window shopping in Shanghai to hear about her approach to consumer stocks, and in particular how the trend of premiumization is playing into her investment thinking. I'm standing here at a sprawling hypermarket in Shanghai with Hyomi Ji, a portfolio manager at Fidelity International who focuses on China's consumer sector. We're at RT Mart in Yangpu, a mainly residential district a few kilometers north of Shanghai's historic riverfront Bund. It's a typical weekday morning in the summer and the store is busy with all kinds of shoppers from across generations. They're picking over produce, looking for bargains, stocking up on bulk items like rice. And this is a retail super center. They sell everything from leather shoes to air conditioners to live lobsters. Hyomi, you actively stock pick within China's retail sector. And I'd mentioned to you previously that I was interested in seeing how you carry out research on the ground. Uh, and I assume that's why you brought me here today, is that right? Yes, yes, exactly. You come to the store and you see what kind of consumers are coming to the store and what kind of things they are buying, in which aisles they are spending more time on. So that helps me to gain a bit more insight into what kind of brands are gaining traction and what kind of products are gaining interest from the everyday consumer. One of the trends across the consumer space that we talked about before was premiumization and how customers are kind of upgrading their purchases across a whole bunch of different categories. How does that play out in an environment like this in a, in a supermarket? Premiumization is a trend that's going on across all the sectors in consumer, I should say. It's really driven by growing income of Chinese consumers and expanding middle class and their desire to want and aim for higher quality products. And in supermarket environment, you can see that uh, people will choose higher quality, higher priced items within the same brands or they might move up to the uh, perceived higher end brands, but also within the fresh produce that is happening as well. If you see that in the traditional supermarkets, you can see the piles of meat products in in a very typical Chinese supermarket. And in some in front of us here today, I, I see the butcher swinging his cleaver here in the background. But yeah, right. But that's very normal, and that's still the majority. But you can see that in the small section and. Uh, which is expanding, you can see that there are branded ports, branded beef, 
and it is packaged in a small format that's suitable for single households and younger generation who don't want to spend too much time in cutting and, and cooking. So individually wrapped in plastic as opposed to a giant slab of ribs or, or, or something like that. Indeed. And per, per unit price, it should be higher by easily 20-30%. But from consumer's perspective, maybe you can actually save food by not buying too much at once. And also it's much easier for you to prepare your food. So you're, you're paying more per unit, but you're probably wasting less on the whole. What does it mean for a company uh, at the bottom line level? Are you seeing that you know, feed through in, in revenue and in sales? It's still a small portion of their revenue, but the companies who can take advantage of this kind of trend with better marketing and better merchandise would obviously be able to attract more customers to lead to better revenue. And at the product level, at the unit level, they should be able to generate better returns and better margin. Beyond supermarkets, when you look across retail, what other areas are you seeing premiumization playing out? What are some of the other sectors? I should say that in services, the premiumization is also happening. The overseas travel has been growing faster than domestic travel in a very consistent way for the past few years. And then that is shown in the duty-free stores revenue growth trends in the past few years as well. And then when you're, when you're not running around the aisles of supermarkets like these, what, what are some of the other things you're doing on the ground to, to kind of carry out research when you're, when you're coming to China? Because I know you do travel here quite often. When I come to China, I try to spend my time here as much as like locals. So I take DD and go to other department stores or I go to meet my friends. And on the way, I get to see many different things like what's happening, what's changing. And also the payment patterns is definitely changing in China. So it indeed is a cashless economy at the moment. You really need to pay things with Alipay or Pay. Another thing that I have been doing for more in-depth research is to spend a couple of weeks with the Chinese family doing homestay. So last year, I spent two weeks in Shenzhen with a Chinese family of four members where I could learn about their consumption behavior, their aspiration, what they care about for their children and their parents and their wealth creation and all these things. So soon I'm going to go to Chengdu and we'll spend another two weeks with the Chinese family over there. Thanks, Naomi. That's a really interesting look at how stock pickers are doing their research on the ground in China. So Jing, Hyomi paints a rich picture there. She's spending time in the new engine room of the Chinese economy, as we can hear, in these shopping malls and spending time with families, really going uh, in deep to help her understand the country's changing consumer trends. But stepping back a little bit, what about the equity markets more broadly? I mean, how, do, how have they been developing? I think there is a key element they are currently missing from the whole story, which I think is very important going forward, which is the income element in China. Uh, Income story globally has been a very popular strategy, but very few people associate China with income element because uh, people coming here, they're looking for the growth story. They are not looking for the dividend story. But China is actually changing into a very interesting income story. We're now growing 10% every year, right? This year we're growing six, next year probably we'll be growing at five or something. 
But for corporate, their free cash flow is improving. And with cash coming in, they now have an opportunity to think about a, another capital allocation perspective, which is paying dividend. I mean, when I think back to some of the changes we saw in the European market, so going back sort of 10, 15, 20 years ago, companies were prevented from paying dividends because the boards would often think that you were taking money out of the out of the pockets of the employees and giving them to, to shareholders. But I've always thought that there's a kind of an association with actually companies paying dividends and treating minority shareholders well with a with a maturity of a of an investment market. So Casey, is this is this good news from an analyst perspective? Yeah, yeah, it definitely is, Paris. Um, I think the the thought process for some of the Chinese companies in years gone by was that dividends were simply paying money out of the company away to foreigners. Uh, that's gradually changing. And I think there's a recognition that, that capital structure is, is more important. Um, and they have made some significant progress. Uh, it, it's been helped by the government. SOEs are now mandated to pay out 30% of their earnings. And I think if you look at the market as a whole, I, I think it trades on about a 25 to 3% dividend yield which is actually higher than the US, the S&P 500. Uh, so they've still got a long way to go, but they've definitely made some significant progress. And of course, it's such a strong signal of the continuing evolution of these markets. And as I mentioned earlier in the introduction, there's another significant development, which is that the Chinese regulators have dropped quotas for foreign institutional investors, or QFI. I mean, this is a really big deal, isn't it, Jing? It is. It is indeed a very big deal. That means that uh, the market will some way become open access for everyone, right? You don't need a quota to buy China Asia. That actually bring a sweet memory of me. I was remember back in 2004, I was at the door of CSRC applying for the QFI license and applying for the QFI quota. And we got thrilled when regulator awarded us 50 million US dollar QFI quota. And we thought that was a quite achievement right back in 2004. And now 15 years later on, you don't need a quota to buy China Asia's. Very exciting as well. So I think that with years move along and without a quota or any kind of restriction coming tag on it to it, that just means that the market become a very friendly, even playing field for everybody. Yeah, I remember I had a, a similar circumstance about 10 years ago as well. I remember applying for an additional QFI quota and the, the process was very laborious, very bureaucratic. It was, it was almost government to government style negotiations. Uh, and removing that sort of hindrance to, to foreign investors is, is, is a huge plus for the opening up of the China markets. And obviously, when we think about as, as investors, we're always thinking about investing for the long term. And, and you know, there's, 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 some, there's a difference that often people think about between long term investing and, and then thinking about the, the, the market in China, which they see as being very kind of volatile and, and, and retail driven. Do you think that there is an opportunity to kind of reframe the investing proposition for those domestic uh, savers? Yeah, I think it's a gradual process. But all these measures that the, the government's instituted to get foreign investors, foreign institutions investing into China means that they're less driven by speculation. They become less short term. Uh, the market becomes much more fundamental based. 
Uh, and I think it, if you have a long history of following those fundamentals, uh, you'll have a, have a big advantage in the, in the Asia market as it develops. So what exactly do recalibrations like these mean on a practical level in terms of trading with and inside the country? Investment Director Catherine Young spoke to Fidelity's Head of Trading in Asia, Kelly Clark, to find out. And a short caveat before we hear the interview, this conversation was recorded before the latest announcements around the scrapping of the QFI quotas. We've seen a whirlwind of changes relating to access and regulation for trading when it comes to the Chinese market. Volumes have skyrocketed, but there's still a number of hurdles to navigate. I'm with Kelly Clark, Fidelity's head of Asian equity trading based here in Hong Kong. Kelly, you've been in the market now for eight years. Can you share some of the biggest changes you've seen over this period? Sure. Uh, Well, for starters, when I first started trading, the only way to access China was through QFI. And I was actually at a hedge fund at the time, so the only way we could do that was synthetically, which made it very difficult and very expensive to actually access the market. Uh, So I would say the biggest change in my tenure has been Stock Connect, uh, which went live in 2014. And that was far more affordable to reach. You didn't have the issues with putting cash up front um, or with repatriating cash back out of China. So it made it much more palatable to invest in. Um, That also piqued the interest of the MSCI and FTSE and why you have the interest I think you have in it now. So in layman's terms, Kel, what's the key differences between QFI and Stock Connect, especially from a trading perspective? You've got the, able, the ability to trade with different counterparties. Again, you can move cash more freely. It's a lot more familiar in the counterparties that you're trading with as well. It was just a lot easier to, to access and open accounts. With QFI? So QFI still has its advantages. You can trade during Hong Kong holidays, which you can't do through Connect. You can also invest in the full universe of stocks versus the limited amount that you have in Connect, which is about 1200 The bigger one being now that you it's the only way that foreigners can access uh, the Star IPO board. Ah, yes, the Star IPO board. I'm glad you mentioned this. So this is a science and technology exchange similar to NASDAQ. Correct. So I think the, the driver of this, like as you mentioned, was for the NASDAQ. So for new sort of unicorn tech type companies to come to market within China. So we are seeing sort of more foreigners, whether it's institutional money, retail money going into the market. This is obviously being driven a lot by the Chinese government's policies to open up the capital markets, both equities and fixed income. So when we have the second largest economy in the world, uh, a government who's very pro opening up the capital markets, can you please put into perspective just how big China is? So China actually represents 70% of all of the turnover in equity in Asia. If we're seeing all this turnover, is it an easy market to trade? So it's a liquid market to trade. I wouldn't qualify it as easy because it's actually still very volatile, considering you've got the, the retail investor base that you do. I think there's still a few hurdles you know, in, in getting more foreign investment into China, uh, one of them being access to hedging instruments. So futures would be the main one there that everybody's looking for as a way to hedge out their, their index risk. So there are, there are steps that the, the government's taking there um, or that the exchanges are taking there too in sourcing solutions for that issue. There's also a number of nuances still around settlement cycles, funding, broker settlement. But again, they're pretty small nuances, and the government is focused on, on getting those, those looked at. Kelly, thanks so much for your time. I mean, it's a fascinating market to trade and, and to watch the developments in terms of the progress. Paris, that's all from us here on the trading floor in Hong Kong. So, Casey, with your tech focus on China, what do you make of the launch of the Starboard that Kelly just mentioned? 
Yeah, the starboard's a, a really interesting development. It's, it's another one of these baby steps to, to opening up and, and broadening the, uh, the Chinese markets. But I think uh, the fact that it's a, it's a registration rather than approval structure to, to list a company there is, is quite important. It means that these, these loss-making companies, these high-tech companies which are, which are innovating, uh, can list and, and it gives them a new source of funding. Um, I think from an from a investor point of view, it also opens up the opportunities to some of these smaller innovative companies that were probably only available to, to PE or, or VC type investors previously. And Jing, you, you are a self-proclaimed value investor. Have you been looking at technology stocks at all recently? Of, of course. Actually, last year, uh, a very decent amount of my time is looking at technology sector, particular in a context of the trade war between U.S. and China. A lot of technology stocks and was the falling victim because of that. And valuation, uh, for some of them, it looks really, really compelling, even from the, from the perspective of a value investor. I mean, trade war was one of those things that we talked about on the last episode, and we, we made a call that it would be not a short-lived phenomenon, and so it's proved. And, but for a stock picker such as yourself, Casey, how do you deal with you know, a backdrop of, of trade wars? You're trying to sort of find individual opportunities. Yeah, well, like Jing says, the tech sector really has been in the crosshairs of the trade war, and, and the, the volatility that that's brought has made it uh, quite difficult especially when the sentiment of the market can, can turn on a dime after just a, a single tweet. But uh, having said that, you know, it did introduce some value into the sector and there have been buying opportunities. Uh, and if you focus more on the longer term trends, there is an opportunity for Chinese companies to become more self-sufficient in some of the tech areas, take some, some revenue, some business opportunities off the US companies. Uh, and, and so I am increasingly looking for those opportunities on a long-term basis. Yeah, I think uh, like we Chinese always say, every crisis comes with an opportunity. So when we think about a trade war, of course, the relationship between these two countries, I think, from in, in my personal view, is fundamentally changed going forward. But that actually leaves... Uh, opportunity for China to rethink about their supply chain and they want to reduce the dependence of uh, some of the key supply chain components uh, to, to external party and they want to rebuild some of the supply chain company and of course they want to build a domestic economy to fend off any uncertainty coming from the global trade and I'm hoping for that this trade war will push the policymaker to really seriously think about market reform because uh, when one door is closed, uh, you want to open the other window. So it really sounds like when we come to think about sort of China from a stock picking perspective, that despite all of the development of the market, all of the maturity and some really key changes that we've talked about with respect to companies looking at uh, returns to minority shareholders, actually, there's no shortcut to doing your homework properly. Of course, for me, I've been investing in China for the past 15 years. That market for me today versus 15 years ago is equally challenging, equally new, and equally interesting. It's just like a brand new market. Yeah, I don't, I don't think there's any substitute for boots on the ground and, and kicking tires. Great. Well, that brings us to the end of our show today. Thank you to my studio guests, Jing Ning and Casey McLean, and to our other contributors, Hyomi Ji and Kelly Clark, with Catherine Young. And thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, then please rate and review us on your podcast app. We really appreciate it. And if you want to read more of what's been covered today, then please go to our website. Our producers were Seb Morton-Clark and Neil Goff, and our editor is Richard Edgar. Until next time, from Fidelity's Hong Kong studios, goodbye. Goodbye. 
This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.